Welcome back to Seeing Red. I'm Mark. And I'm Bethan. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, this is part three of the three-part episode this week. Uh, Thank you for waiting patiently. So if you have listened to parts one and two over the last couple of days, um, yeah, this is it. This is the final part. And Bethan's uh, gone through the build-up to this tragic fire and then taken us through uh, what happened real time, really, in the early hours of of that fateful morning. So uh, take it away. So yeah, the last couple of episodes, as Mark said, we went through that fire that ravaged the Stardust nightclub in Dublin on Valentine's Day in 1980, killing 48 of the patrons and injuring 215 others. So in today's episode, I'm going to be taking you through the aftermath of the tragedy and some of the reasons that such an awful event happened. The investigation at the time reported that the fire was an arson, but there was never any evidence to support this. And actually, the finding of arson was later ruled out by investigators. There was never any evidence to support this. The fire happened in 1980, but rather than having a swift conclusion, the families are still to this day fighting for answers and information. In the aftermath of the fire, the community was devastated. Of the 48 people who died, half were age 18 or under. Only a handful were over the age of 21. In the eight minutes since a barman called 999, 46 people had been killed, 214 injured, and later two more would die of their injuries. 18-year-old Liam Dunn and the girl he was chasing that night, 17-year-old Donna Mahon. So Liam actually lived for a month, his lungs destroyed, communicating with his family by only moving his eyebrows, but he died on March the 11th. The youngsters were mostly from the very close-knit area, the working-class North Dublin areas of Donny Carney, Artane, Bonnybrook and Cullock. Richard Bennett's mother described him as the leader of the pack, the son, the daddy, the father of the house. He told the others in the most positive way when to go out and when to come in and to do what their mummy says. Ironically, he had a job installing fire extinguishers. Liam Dunn, who was 18, was described by his father as cheeky, full of fun and working as a butcher in Superquin. His dad said he had ambitions, he was going to night school, he had his sights on being a manager. Michael French too was 18 and was due to start working with an auto electrician the following Monday. He was a near neighbour of the Dunn's and there is a happy Christmas photograph of him, young and good looking and it's there in the Dunn's living room. He's got his arm playfully around Liam's mum. So for me, these anecdotes really highlight how the deaths of these people hit so many people hard. This was a really close-knit community where you would either have a family member who'd lost their lives or someone that you were really close to that you knew really well. Yeah, it's it's hard enough, isn't it? If you've got, if if you had lost somebody within your own family in that fire, that that's obviously, that's appalling. But even if it's not that, you're going to know somebody who's lost a, a member of their family and that's really hard too. Um, or, or some families might have lost multiple people. There, there were some people in that list of names that you read at the end of episode two that had the same surname. So they were either relatives or, or a spouse. You know, it's just terrible. There were um, a group of sisters that were there that night. And I will move on to their story a bit later. And absolutely, when I was writing out those names, I just couldn't. Yeah, you just kind of think like, oh, my gosh, like they they are related. And. And then to find out that, for example, Michael and Liam, they're mu- like they knew each other's family so well. Like, yeah, it's just crazy. So let's look at what went wrong. So obviously I spoke previously about the fact that the exits were blocked or locked 
or at least chained in a way that they looked locked so that people wouldn't be tempted to try and sneak in. But this made people think that they weren't accessible. But the failings of the Stardust went a lot further than this. With two exceptions, none of the staff, including the management, had any training in or particular knowledge of fire safety. A bylaw stated all staff were supposed to receive instruction in the basic principles of firefighting, how to use the appliances available, but this requirement was not complied with. No instructions were given by the management or anyone else to any member of staff as to what the procedure was to be followed in the event of a fire. There were no signs that clarified what the plan was in the event of a fire. No fire drills of any sort were ever organised on the premises, nor were evacuation procedures ever laid down or even discussed. Only three members of staff had ever used a fire extinguisher, and many of the staff didn't even know where the fire extinguishers were located in the premises. None of the doormen knew that the two side doors at Outer Exit 2 could be opened or even that they were actually doors and not windows, although Eamon Butterley did know about this. So that could have been two extra doors that were opened. Eamon Butterley knew of the existence of the Dublin Corporation Public Resort bylaws but had a very limited knowledge of what was required by them. Many members of the staff who were questioned as to their knowledge of the bylaws said that they knew nothing about them, and this applied in particular to all of the doormen. The head doorman and his deputy were aware, however, that the exit doors should not be locked while public were on the premises. A bylaw stated that a diagram and schedule indicating clearly the arrangement of the circuits and sub-circuits, the position of the distribution boards and the size of the cables should be kept in an accessible position on the premises open to inspection by the corporation at any time, but no such diagram or schedule was kept in any position on the premises. Another bylaw stated that at least one bucket filled with dry sand or chemical extinguisher of the type approved should be provided and kept readily accessible in certain positions, giving a number of examples, but this was not complied with. Fire extinguishers as required were not provided in the battery and switch rooms or in the shed housing the generator. It was advised that a building of the size of this one should have a fire plan drawn up and this should be kept near the main entrance. It would include the position of all exits, positions of stairways, internal fire mains and valves, hydrants, outlets, first aid hose reels, basically everything that the fire brigade would need, but also that the staff would need. It would also be there in in a case of an inspection. No plan was provided at all. There were bylaws that related to how rubbish was stored that weren't followed. All exits, corridors, passageways, stairways and landings were meant to be kept clear and unobstructed to their full effective width. But this wasn't followed and regular inspections to check on this were not undertaken either. So there is a lot that really should have happened in this place that just didn't. But I hope I hope you come on to it. Obviously, the landlords of the premises failed. Uh, in not having all of those things, but surely they would have and should have been inspected by the local council, the fire regulatory bodies, and told to put these things in place and then been re-inspected to make sure they were or be shut down. You would hope so, wouldn't you? And I think that's one of the really key things is that um, actually going forward, a lot of changes were then put in place and a lot of checks were put in place. Yeah, we were so backward back then, even just the 1980s. It was just quite backward. It it was only like 30, 40 years ago. But there were so many things that would happen then that could not happen now. 
because laws have been passed or we've learned from things. But I almost think we weren't as we definitely weren't as sophisticated a society as we are now. Because these things do still happen, of course, but they happen a lot less in in the Western world than they did. Yeah, and I think now when things start to happen, they're taken in under control a lot quicker as well because people are aware of so much more. Yeah, I think there's just, there's a lot of regulation now and we all moan about it, a lot of red red tape, but there are reasons why we have it. And I moan about stuff like that all the time, but there are reasons why we have to have it. And it's so that if something like this happens, then everybody knows what to do and the building is evacuated in the right way. Doors aren't locked and crates of beer aren't stacked up blocking fire exits. So Tribunal of Inquiry under Justice Ronan Keane concluded in November 1981 that the fire was probably caused by arson. This finding, which has been disputed ever since, legally exonerated the owners from responsibility. However, having said that, the inquiry was damning in its criticism of the safety standards. It criticised the owners and management of the Stardust. Yet, despite the clear breaches of fire safety regulations, the owners never faced charges and have never apologised for what were described as recklessly dangerous practices. The families of the victims and survivors fought in the courts for compensation, accountability and, in their eyes, some sort of justice. But the money that they were awarded was very little. Because of the finding of probable arson, relatives of the dead and injured were unable to sue the club owners and operators for alleged negligence. And it would be nearly four years before people injured in the blaze and families who lost loved ones received compensation. The biggest awards were between £100,000 and £200,000, but most were just around 20000 and one mother who lost two daughters in the fire received just £7,500 for each of them. The owners, however, the Butterley family, were nevertheless free to pursue their own claim for compensation against the city because of this arson finding. The circuit court judge dealing with the claim found in their favour and eschewing any probability as to the cause of the blaze declared he was satisfied that the fire was indeed malicious and the Butterley family were awarded £580,000. As, as well as insurance, I'm guessing. I'm guessing, yeah. On top of that, yeah. Sure, this is Peloton. This is a 15-minute low-impact ride, but so is this. We're here together for a 10-minute empathy meditation. And even this. We get hit in with a 20-minute hip-hop shadow boxes session. Ah, what more could you ask for? Well, with thousands of classes on our bike treading app, there's more to Peloton than you might have thought. This is Peloton. Internet connection and Peloton all-access membership required. See onepeloton.co.uk. In 2009, four relatives of those who had died in the fire held a sit-in in in a security hut in the government buildings, and they were there to campaign to the government to publish a report that examined the need to open a new investigation into the disaster. Due to this, the government commissioned an independent examination by Paul Coffey SC of the case submitted by the Stardust Victims Committee for a reopened inquiry into the Stardust fire disaster. And whilst they did say that it would not be in the public interest to reopen the public inquiry due to the passage of time and the lack of physical evidence, it did say that the public record should be altered to reflect a paragraph called paragraph 167 of the original inquiry. This stated, the cause of the fire is not known and may never be known. There is no evidence of an accidental origin and equally no evidence that the fire was started deliberately. 
So finally, this led to a correction of the public record and the original arson conclusion was removed as the cause. There was no evidence that this fire was ever started maliciously. And I just, from everything you've said, I I don't get that, that it would have been. I really don't. No. From the way it took hold and the way it started. I think it started in a building that was a part of the building that was adjacent to an outside terrace, I think you said. I would say it probably started from somebody discarding a lit cigarette. This is the thing. People would have thought that. But because it started within the the actual storeroom, um, it seems to be that it was actually something just like something was stored wrong, something combustible was stored wrong. Stored against a plug socket or something. Potentially, yeah. But there's no, there's nobody knows for definite. And I think that's what's so sad with this is because everything was kind of almost ruined and obliterated, there is no real definitive answer. In 2017, Judge McCartan was tasked with looking into whether a new inquiry was required, but he decided no and stated that the grief must have been compounded by the failure of anyone to explain the cause of the fire. But he gave his reasons for saying that there shouldn't be a new inquiry. He said, due to the passing of time, it is much harder today to find such an explanation, and this assessment must conclude that the cause of the fire may never be known. I feel for all the families today, as I know that they will be disappointed with the outcome of this assessment. They have suffered a huge loss, and their efforts over 36 years are a testament to their loved ones. And then in June 2018, a campaign called the Truth Card campaign was launched. Its aim was to get as many signatures as possible on postcards to appeal to the Attorney General of Ireland to finalise the coroner's reports on the deaths of the 48 young people killed in the fire. Finally, on the 25th of September 2019, the Attorney General confirmed that fresh inquests were to be held into the 48 deaths at the Stardust Fire. In a statement at the time, the Office of the Attorney General said he has formed the opinion that fresh inquests into the stardust deaths are advisable. And this was because he considers the original inquest there was insufficiency of inquiry as to how the deaths occurred, namely a failure to sufficiently consider those of the surrounding circumstances that concern the cause of the fire. The Attorney General is thus satisfied that holding fresh inquests is, on balance, in the public interest and in the interests of justice. So that was finally in September 2019. One of the campaigners was Christine Keegan. So you may remember that surname. Her three daughters were at the Stardust on the night of the fire and two of her daughters, Mary and Martina, died in the tragedy. One, Antoinette, survived and she said, I lost my two sisters in the Stardust and I also was seriously injured. I was in intensive care for two and a half weeks on life support. Can you imagine being the mum of those three girls I just can't can't cope with that and and also for Antoinette who survived can you imagine that that kind of potentially the guilt that she might feel and also being probably well I think she was on live support so essentially in an induced or otherwise coma for uh, two weeks and then comes round to the news that both of her sisters have died I know So the girl's mum campaigned for decades for the 48 people killed. She was described as a fighter and hero. And if you look for any news articles, Christine will be mentioned. Um, She's so heavily involved. The mother and daughter were heavily involved in the Stardust Victims Committee. Christine died recently, but Antoinette said that she was confident the new inquest will give answers to the families affected and will see justice for their loved ones. And she believes that... 
for the first time, victims are going to be portrayed as human beings rather than numbers or statistics. And what I find really interesting is because this was only September 2019, I was thinking to myself, right, I really want to hear more about this. I want to know more. And as I was writing my script, the first preliminary hearing occurred um, in Dublin. So it started in October. Um, The court were told this will be a new inquiry. They will not be a review or an adjudication on any probe that has gone before. Coroner Dr. Myra Cullinane examined a number of procedural issues to facilitate the smooth running of the inquest, which are expected to begin properly next year. The coroner said the inquests are expected to be lengthy, but will be new and they are not bound by any previous inquest finding. So families gathered outside Dublin's coroner's court to mark the start of the process and remember those that they lost almost 40 years ago. And I found it so incredibly moving to be writing my script and looking at what happened, knowing that they were going to those first preliminary hearings and that next year they might finally get something that they've been looking for all this time. Yeah, I really hope for them, but I still can't believe that it's it's taken 40 years it's it's gone on for 40 years yeah for those for those families who in in their minds don't have an answer to this and haven't got justice it's still raging on into what will be its fifth decade nearly yeah and i really hope that the families get some answers soon there was loads of anger and grief around the way that the bodies of the deceased were handled the treatment that their families received and i'm not going to go into those things today You can find out much more about this very easily online, but it made me so cross to read about it. The outrage that people felt about the case didn't just come from the fire itself. In July 1985, Irish folk singer Christy Moore was found guilty of contempt of court after writing and releasing a song which contained lyrics classed as libelous. So the song They Never Came Home contained the following lines... In a matter of seconds, confusion did reign. The room was in darkness, fire exits were chained and hundreds of children are injured and maimed and all because the fire exits were chained. So because it appeared to imply that the obstruction of the exits was solely responsible for the deaths and injuries, the song was banned. It still is to this day in Ireland, although it is still available in other countries. Um, Eamon Butterley caused a huge amount of controversy in 2006 when he planned to reopen licensed premises on the site of the Stardust on the 25th anniversary. So the plans were described as insensitive and protesters, including the victim's family, demonstrated for 10 weeks playing Christy Moore's song outside of the pub. It's nothing to do with the crime, but I kind of enjoyed this. I act, love that, okay? yeah. I the love that. The song was played so long that three tapes failed, so the protesters had to go and get a CD player, and they played that for so long that it failed after eight days. They then had to get an MP3 player. That lasted the rest of the protest. So they played that same song every night from 6pm until 8pm, whilst the families and supporters demonstrated. Finally, the Butterley family agreed to erect a memorial on the site and they changed the name of the pub from the Silver Swan to the Artane House. The fire at the Stardust led to a huge number of recommendations being made in relation to fire safety, but for a lot of people this was too little too late. Some basic rules, such as the provision of fire extinguishers and the fact that the exit should have been left unblocked, which have since been implemented, would have prevented many deaths if they existed at the time and why were they not 
you know, laws at the time? Why were they just bylaws? Why were they not definitive? And as I said previously, people were still campaigning until last year for more answers. This tragedy is still very much in the minds of the people of the local community. Wow, it's um a tragic case, but it's tragic doubly because it's still it's still ongoing really, isn't it? Yeah, and I think that's almost almost worse because it didn't just happen and people had some way to deal with their grief and to focus the the grief and and get some sort of what they would feel was justice they're still fighting to this day hmm. it do, it really does remind me of the hillsborough case that we covered that you covered um that there are to me there are quite a lot of similarities particularly in the protracted number of inquiries and that that real quest for justice on behalf of the victims which went on for decades as well no absolutely Thank you for listening. That's all three parts done. Uh, we'll be back. Uh, no, we're having a break, I think, aren't we? No, we'll be back next week with um, oh. our season finale. <laughs> and then we'll be having a two-week break um, in December to have a little bit of, oh, little bit of a December season break. Finale. Yeah, it's our I, season I, finale next week. Yeah, which is a bit of a two-parter, I think, isn't it? It's going to be a two-parter and it's going to be an incredibly new, completely different, something we haven't ever done before. Yeah, absolutely. Something uh, we've been working on for quite a long time, actually. Yeah. And um, although it's a two-parter, we'll release both episodes, or we're intending to release both of them uh, on the same day. So um, thank you very much to the person who requested this case, and um, I really hope I've done it justice for you and your reasons behind requesting it. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening, and please do join us on all the social medias to discuss these episodes and what you thought of today's case yep and we'll see you next week see you then bye Bye.